0: We put a lot of different things in hamantash. like, now suddenly I don't want to eat a raspberry one because that reminds me of like menstrual cycles. I don't want to eat an apricot one because that looks like a yeast infection. Uh, like, <laughs> like, I'm sorry. I, Adela, you're running, ruining, ruining hamantash. They ruined They ruined it. And I'm just showing you it's been ruined. Anyway. My name is Adela Kochav. And I'm Mariam Waba. We
1: are the Daughters of Diaspora. And this is Americanish.
0: Welcome back to Americanish. This week we're talking about two things we're very passionate about, food and faith.
1: Last week was Purim, a Jewish holiday generally associated with hamantaschen, a triangle-shaped cookie usually filled with fruit jams, among other things. Some people love the cookie, while others not so much. On Friday, March 3rd, I saw that Tablet Magazine, in partnership with Juicy, published a story titled, Stop Trying to Make Hamantaschen Happen, insinuating throughout the article that the buttery jammy cookies were just not that good. The foodie that I am, I quickly texted Adela asking her thoughts on hamantaschen, and she was quick to respond that she likes them. We quickly jumped on an Instagram Live to discuss this vital question with our friends and followers. There, we found much division. People love them, while others thought they were more often than not Very dry and sandy. Even amongst those who liked hamantaschen, there were varying opinions on what the best filling is. Now, we do want to issue a disclaimer here. Um, We both love Tablet Magazine and Juicy. We both know amazing people who work there. And if you don't already, go check them out.
0: But I do have to say that the article did spark the great hamantaschen debate of 2023 between me and Mariam and the Tab and Juicy editors, and we, we actually did an Instagram live on this if you want to check it out, but, um, you know, Tablet and Juicy's bad take on hamantaschen wasn't the only bad take that I read, so there was an article from Hey Alma about why hamantaschen are shaped like triangles, talking about how they're actually supposed to represent vaginas. Trigger warning here if you don't like talking about vaginas, because I'm about to get into it for a second. According to this article, um, the Israelites, before they became a monotheistic religion, were making fertility cakes for Ishtar, the goddess of fertility. Ishtar sounds a lot like Esther, so around that time, they would continue to make fertility cakes. At the same time, in Italy, triangular shaped cookies were very popular at the time for people who were worshiping Ishtar or whatnot, which is weird because why are people worshiping Ishtar in Italy? I have no idea, but the article seems to find it plausible. So the rabbi said, if people are eating these foods anyway around this holiday, let's just read an explanation into it. Let's just say it's Haman's hat. But the article goes as far as to say that the triangular cookie is supposed to be a pocket of poppy seeds mounds to remind us of Ishtar and fertility. And that was very uncomfortable to me. And, uh, you know, whatever it is that you think, and it might as well be true, it may be possibly true that all of this started because of a fertility ritual for Ishtar and Ishtar is Esther and now we're making fertility cakes and it's a feminist holiday and because of feminism, we have to eat vaginas. Sure, that's cool. But... That's not the tradition anymore. And no offense, but if we're giving these cookies to children and to people, like, I'd rather be told I'm eating the hat or the ear of Haman, the man who wanted to kill us, than to be like, you're eating a vagina and the poppy seeds are pubic hair. And that's kind of not my vibe. (laughs) Not that there's anything wrong with it. If that's something you enjoy, go for it. But I just feel it was like, (laughs) where, where are we? They called it the her story of Hamantashen. How about we don't do that? How about we don't do that? I don't know. I don't know. I, I personally found it a little bit retroactive when we read modern societal values and modern agendas into traditions that we've had for generations.
1: Right. And and clearly, food is very much tied to our faith and religion and, and everybody's faith and religion, whether you know it and, and uh, can sense it uh, and, um, you know, acknowledge it or not. Like, everything is tied to food, the way we practice our faith, culture, religion, whatever it is. It's all tied back to food. So I can definitely see why it might be concerning for you when people try to attach their personal agendas or or movements to something that has been uh, practiced uh, and explained to you in a way for so long. Um, And as the week went on last week, Adele and I could not stop talking about Hamantaschen, And not just because we both love the cookies and are so passionate about this, but it eventually led to us having a much larger conversation about the relationship between food and who we are as people. What does food mean to Jews? What does food mean to Copts? What does food mean to any other cultural or religious group? And how do they use food as a way to practice their faith and, and religion? Um, and that's kind of where I want us to start this week. And I, I want to share what our general relationship to food is and how it fits into our, our very faithful, very religious lives. Um, Adela? So um,
0: Judaism has a very close relationship with food and, and food is a very large part of Judaism. Usually when you talk to someone about how observant they are, you usually ask two things. Do you keep Shabbat and are you kosher? And, you know, Jews to an extent will fall somewhere on a spectrum. There's the most stringent and there's the most lenient and people who just don't do it at all. But kosher food plays a very large part of your life. If you have kosher friends or friends who are fully glot kosher, cholav yisrael, you know that even to, you know, go out to dinner, they can't go out to all the restaurants. It has to be a kosher restaurant. Can you eat at your friends' houses? Can you not? What foods can you or can you not eat? Some people eat dairy out. Some people eat fish out. Some people don't eat anything out. So when it comes to Judaism and kosher, kosher plays a huge role in our everyday lives. Food plays a huge role in our everyday lives and the way we interact with the secular, non-religious world. And then, of course, there's the way that food plays into holidays. Every holiday has a sort of food that's associated with it, either a mandatory food or a customary food. And we'll we'll definitely get into that more in the episode, but that's the general Jewish relationship to food is um, a very big one. What, What about, you know, Coptic Christians? I know we've talked about, if you haven't checked did our episode on fasting. Mariam really breaks down Coptic fasting, but Cops, as I understand it, fast for like two-thirds of the year.
1: Yeah, it's it's a lot of fasting and I want to get into it in a sec, but first I really want to understate and underline um, how Jewish food has transcended Judaism in a lot of ways and entered mainstream culture and mainstream conversations. Uh, the way that I use the words bakka and challah and rugula and hamantashen in my daily vocabulary, you know, is, is not healthy for my arteries, but <laughs> it really speaks to how much Jewish food has entered everywhere else. And it doesn't just stay within the community. And it is a great way for other people to learn about our cultures. It's a great way to, uh, you know, learn about Shabbat is learning what challah is and why we eat it and you dip it in the salt and you eat it on Fridays. And like the the act of making it is just so beautiful. And it's part of both the religion and the culture. Um, yeah, I was going to say, I, I love,
0: I love when you go to a restaurant and you just see challah French toast or challah avocado toast. And I'm like, hm, that's ours. That's, that's ours. Like I saw exactly there's a place that has challah eggs benedict. And I'm like, okay, I'll take it. Like, let's do it. Challah eggs benedict. Don't you know? Th- right.
1: Bagels. Yeah. Even. Bagels.
0: Jews control the world. Of course we control the food scene of New York.
1: <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Um, okay. Back to cops. Um, so somebody did the math, and cops are, or at least good cops are supposed to fast 210 days of the 365, which is, um, I can't do math for my life, but uh, a little over two-thirds of the year. Um, is it a little over? No, it's Not a little older. under two-thirds of the year, my cool. God. Yeah. <laughs> Neither of us are mathematicians, so
0: it's, it's cool.
1: Yeah, no STEM majors <laughs> here. Anyways, yeah. Um, so fasting is a big part of the Coptic identity, the Coptic culture, and it's a big part of our everyday lives because you're constantly thinking, oh, crap, am I supposed to be fasting? And two out of three times, the answer is yes. Um, and the logical question or the logical place to go after, um, you know, putting that out there in that we fast a little less than two thirds of the year is like, why? Like, why? what does fasting do for you as a person of faith, as a Copt? And the answer is quite simple yet of course complicated um in that food is one of the biggest ways that we are tempted um gluttony is obviously a sin um so food is one of your earthly desires your earthly needs you obviously need food and fuel to go about your day to wake up to walk to run to do your exercises um so we look at food as a temptation first and too, as, a, as a way to connect to god uh, obviously jesus fasted for 40 days moses fasted there's all these biblical characters uh that we know that fasted as a way to achieve almost like a transcendent state and kind of blur out the world blur, blur out the material world in hope of a, a connection to this higher being um, i'll give you one example on easter so on easter eve or holy saturday the coptic uh, church starts their easter vigil which is also known as the great vigil And it lasts until the dawn of Easter. Um, Most people at this time are already fasting, therefore meaning uh, they are not doing any animal products, including fish and honey for this fast, because it's a tier two fast. I'll get to that in a sec. But they abstain also from food and drink for almost 24 hours on Good Friday and Holy Saturday. And they break their fast at the end of that mass. Um, And this Easter Eve ceremony includes... Uh, a symbolic reenactment of christ's ascension also called the resurrection play um and you'll see, if you go to a coptic easter service which is like eight nine hours you'll see uh the church reenact in its liturgy in its mass kind of the burial of jesus and then the resurrection on easter um and that is followed by the fast, excuse me, the, the breaking of the fast, both from your vegan diet, but also from your uh, literal fast and that you haven't had food or water for the last 24 hours. Um, all that being said, food is a very, very big part of Coptic culture and Coptic identity. Um, and I want to get a little bit later on into like, what are Coptic foods? Um, but if I had to kind of sum it up, it's what I call poor food. Um, and you'll find this in a lot of minority communities, a lot of ethno-religious, commu- uh, ethno-religious communities, in that they are doing what they can to make food out of nothing so you'll find a lot of obviously vegetarian food vegan food uh, a lot of beans a lot of things that don't cost very much breads like flour water and and yeast sugar um because it's what our ancestors have done to survive for so long being excluded from a lot of things being on the outside on a lot of things um and obviously that changes once you have a diaspora things uh change and your poor food becomes not so poor food and and the idea or, or the concept of f- poor food changes. I remember the first time we went to a grocery store, one of the couple times we went to a grocery store here in the U.S., um, my mom was really surprised that the price of eggplants because she grew up on a farm and, like, in Egypt, or at least at the time we were growing up, like, vegetables were the thing you eat if you were poor because they were very cheap. It's also what you could grow on your own if you couldn't mm. even afford to buy it. And I remember she saw eggplants and, like, they were more expensive than like chicken per pound or something and she was so confused as to why vegetables were more expensive and I just remember it being like a really distinct memory in my head because for her everything was flipped upside down the poor food was no longer the poor food and an eggplant was a luxury and now meat and, and things that you wouldn't otherwise be able to afford are the things that you can't afford Um so that's, that's just a weird anecdote. I don't know why it came to my head. Um, I do want to switch gears a little bit uh, to talk more about Jewish food. Um, so last Christmas, I ended up ordering Chinese food and I uh, knew what the relationship between Chinese food and Jews on Christmas was, but I'd love for you to break it down for me we've all seen the meme that's
0: like a note written like, dear Jewish people, I don't know why your God insists you eat Chinese food on Christmas, but our community thanks you. And it's like the ongoing joke, Jews and Chinese food on Christmas, Jews with Chinese food Christmas. And um, really, it's it's a partnership of diaspora and a partnership of necessity because, um, because the U.S. is a majority Christian country. And even if it's not observing Christianity, everyone takes off for Christmas. Everything's closed on Christmas. So if you were Jewish and for you, Christmas was just a Tuesday and you wanted to go out to eat somewhere or order in from somewhere. The only thing open were Chinese restaurants. So it it kind of became this like unspoken bond where it's like you're almost like outing each other like, hey, you guys aren't taking off today? No. Like, oh, you guys want to eat from a restaurant and not at your house today? Yeah. You know, Jews and Chinese people, there we go. Jews and Chinese food, unlikely partnership. And I love that you're telling me that you ordered Chinese food this past uh, Christmas because now it's not just Jewish-Chinese, now it's Jewish-Chinese-Coptic. And look at this unity. Look at this this we-don't-celebrate-on-this-day crew. That's
1: right, yeah. And I just... I think it's a really beautiful Americanish mm-hmm. moment. And I call it Chinese Christmas, even though it's definitely not Chinese Christmas because it's anything yeah. but. But I just think it's really beautiful. Like, even just logging on DoorDash on Christmas and, like, being hungry because I don't celebrate Christmas on the 25th being Coptic. Um, and all you find is just all the Asian restaurants open, mm-hmm. ready to serve. Like, the, it's a beautiful mutual understanding of, like, okay, we need to eat. <laughs> No other restaurant will be open because everybody's celebrating this holiday. But we will stay open for you guys. And thank you for ordering from us. And I just think that's really, really beautiful. Um, but obviously, it isn't mandatory to eat Chinese food on Christmas as a Jew. But I do know that there are holidays, including Passover and Rosh Hashanah, where there are some mandatory foods. Um, can you tell me a little bit more about
0: that? And like you said, while it's not mandated to eat Chinese food on Christmas, we do have those mandatories. So um, if you take certain holidays like Passover or Rosh Hashanah, they have something called a seder, which means a, a process. And um, all of these are from the Torah where there's certain foods that represent certain things that you must eat. So for example, on Passover, you must eat matzah. Otherwise, you can't say that you fulfilled your obligation of celebrating Passover. Um, and there's a lot of foods on the Passover Seder. There's, um, again, different symbolism attached to it. But my favorite one is uh, celery dipped into salt water, right, because um, it's supposed to represent the tears that we cried. And this is something that we tell kids from their earliest ages. So like, you know, during the Passover Seder, we look at the kids and we're like, and why do we eat celery with salt water? And all the kids together go, to represent the tears that we cried. And it's like, yes. And if that was, that's the most Jewish moment ever. If, if we were ever gonna connect some symbolism to Jewish food, it's gonna be celery with salt water for the tears that we cried. And um, yeah, it's it's, it's very fine to me. So that's like a mandatory food. And then another mandatory food would be like, Rosh Hashanah Again, there's a ton of different foods that symbolize things, but um, my favorite is we have to eat either the, the tongue of a cow, the head of a cow, the head of a fish, fish eyeballs, just part of the head of an animal to represent that we're starting the year as a head and not as the tail. And it's, a, again, the symbolism, but it's something that you must do. You must have these symbolic foods as opposed to, for example, the customary foods. So uh, we've talked about Hanukkah, and on Hanukkah we eat latkes and donuts, and both of those are oily foods, and the oily food represents the oil of the menorah. But that's not actually part of the holiday. It's a custom we've attached to the Mm. holiday. Same thing when it comes to Purim with hamantaschen. It's it's not really part of the holiday. It's something, a tradition, a custom we've attached to it. So if you don't have a a donut on Hanukkah or if you don't have a hamantaschen on Purim, those aren't really the commandments that you have to do to fulfill that holiday. So I shouldn't be so mad about the Hey Alma situation, you know, about the Volva hamantashen because it's technically not a mandatory food. There are a lot of people that add things to their Seder plates or they change up their Rosh Hashanah Seder or their Passover Seder um, in line with social values. And, and that I think is a little bit... Um, that's a little bit more egregious because at that point, you're taking something that's mandatory and changing it as opposed to adding an explanation or adding a custom to a customary holiday. So uh, those are the, the two, right? You've got the mandatories and you've got the customs and Jewish people love their food and Jewish people love their holidays. So that's that's how we break it down there.
1: Right. And I'm sure I, I would love to know from any of our listeners, like think about anything that you do for a holiday, whether it's mandatory or customary um and think about how if and when anybody changes within your community or outside of it like changes any aspect of it like how would you feel some things i'd be a lot more comfortable with than others so adela i don't i know you're trying to be very reasonable and i don't think you should dismiss your your anger towards this like changing of the narrative because it's very real like i can't imagine somebody coming into the coptic church and being like you know what You know, instead of 210 days, we're only fasting 10 this year. Like, that would piss me off no matter how much I don't particularly enjoy fasting and that it's a very big inconvenience to my life. But it it means a lot. And, like, the fact that it isn't inconvenience is part of it. Like, you are to be inconvenienced because you are trying to connect to God. Um, Last thing I'll say on this is... uh, Every Jewish holiday seems to be like, they tried to kill us, they failed, now let's eat. That's kind of, like, it doesn't surprise me that, you know, dipping celery into salt water to represent the tears is a tradition. Mm. There was actually, a couple years ago, I spent Hanukkah with a couple different rabbis and and Shabbats, whatnot. Um, And that was his toast for the dinners. Like, uh, they tried to kill us 2,000 years ago, they failed, now let's drink. And I just... That's beautiful. Like, that's all I need. Give me the food, give me the drinks, and, and let's party away the sorrows and pains that our people have experienced. It's funny, that's
0: actually how I explained it. Like, again, like, uh, it was just Purim last week, and whenever I was, like, walking around in New York or, like, you know, for my, for my doorman, because I got him some hamantaschen, and he's like, What is this? And I'm like, Oh, it's like a Jewish holiday. We got these triangle cookies. He's like, What is it? I'm like, The hat of the man that tried to kill us. He's like, I need some more context here. And I was like, Well, very long story short, Jews were in Persia. They tried to kill us. There was an evil man through the diplomacy of one of our heroines. They changed it up and then he was killed and we were made second in command to the king and now now we have cookies shaped like shaped like apparently vaginas. Um, <laughs>
1: see? No. No we don't. We don't have cookies shaped like vaginas anyway. <laughs> uh, it doesn't it doesn't even like the story is way less interesting if that's shaped like vaginas. <laughs> I would much rather eat a cookie after the ear of an evil yeah, guy and in the story. Know what? That's like, just way they cooler. They were talking about,
0: like, poppy seed. But, like, we put a lot of different things in hamantash. And, like, now suddenly I don't want to eat a raspberry one because that reminds me of, like, menstrual cycles. I don't want to eat an apricot one because that looks like a yeast infection. Uh, like, <laughs> like, I'm sorry. I, Adella, you're learning. you're ruining, ruining hamantash. They ruined hamantash. They ruined it. And I'm just showing you it's been ruined. Anyway,
1: <laughs> that's a very uncozure topic. Okay. <laughs> Uh, Well, speaking, I don't know how to transition here, but speaking of (laughs) traditions and customary and kind of, you know, mandatory foods, um, whenever I'm eating out with Jewish friends, including you, I always ask the question like, do you eat kosher? Um, Because you always want to be respectful of, you know, are we going to a restaurant that has food Mm -hmm. for everybody that's going? Um, So that's kind of like a basic question I ask. And I I have a general idea of what kosher means, but I would love
0: For everyone listening, kosher is very complicated. And like I said, people keep it at different levels. So right now I'm going to explain the most strict form of kosher, Um, which is what we should all aspire to be, but you know, not everyone's quite there. I personally am not quite there, but um, when it comes to kosher, there is a certain kind of animal that isn't kosher, and then there's animals that could be kosher if they're slaughtered and prepared in the correct way. So for example, when it comes to meat, if you have split hooves and chew your cud, like a cow, for example, then you're a kosher animal. An animal that doesn't have that would inherently not be a kosher animal. So a pig, for example, will never be kosher. A cow could be kosher, but it's not necessarily kosher unless it's slaughtered in a kosher way. Um, When it comes to poultry, for some reason, um, instead of giving us parameters around what makes poultry kosher or unkosher, the Torah instead gives us a list of 24 birds that we cannot eat. I actually don't even know which ones are on that list, but but chicken and turkey are good, so I, I don't have to really worry about thank god and then again it comes with a kosher slaughter and preparation in order for that to be kosher and then when it comes to fish you have to have scales and you have to have fins. So a swordfish would not be kosher, shark would not be kosher, turtles are not fish but they're sea animals but not kosher. Um dolphins not kosher. Uh, those are also mammals, not really fish. Definitely don't have split hooves, so <laughs> that's a non-kosher animal. Um and and again, then whatever is like a fish with scales and fins, so think tuna, salmon, snapper, or you know, sole, all of those don't actually even have a kosher slaughter. So which is very interesting to think of. Um but so that's how the meats are and then i'll explain the kosher process in a second the way that the kosher process is the animal has to feel the least pain so kosher slaughter usually goes along with cutting the major artery that way the animal doesn't feel pain and it will just bleed out instantly and die instantly and after it's been kosher slaughtered then you have to get rid of all the nerves and you also have to um get rid of all of the blood and to do that the meat is salted that's why kosher meat is usually pre-salted, quote-unquote. And when you're preparing kosher meat, you should be cognizant of that and season it a little bit less. Um, On top of that, an animal, doesn't matter what kind of animal, can't be diseased. If it's diseased, then it becomes unkosher. And um, a lot of people are like, "Well, well, why does this exist? And I guess back in the day, if you had, let's say, for example, a sick sheep, then maybe you'd say, okay, this sheep is not going to be producing, it's not going to mate, it's not going to give us milk, so how about we just kill it and eat it? And now we know that that's a very good way to get diseases. So it's kind of like this, um, you know, the Torah understood that if you eat a diseased animal, you might yourself be diseased, so it outlawed that. So once you've checked an animal falls within kosher categories, then you have to check whether or not it's diseased, then it has to be slaughtered in the kosher way, and then it has to be salted and all the nerves must be removed. At that point, you can say that you've had kosher meat meat, which is why it's so expensive, because it's a much longer process. You know, it's not like you just have like one of those like places that just like, you know, have mass produced meat because um, you you have to really check each individual animal. Um, now, dairy. Dairy is a little bit less complicated. So when it comes to dairy, actually, weirdly enough, in the U.S., the FDA regulates milk so much that the OU, which is the rabbinate that certifies the strict level of kosher, decided that the checks were enough to certify it as kosher. So it doesn't need any additional kosher certification, but if you do want it, that's an additional step called Halav Yisrael. But other than that, most milks are FDA approved, which means that they're kosher. And then when it comes to cheese, there's something called retin, which is um, either oils that can be derived from non-animal sources or from animal sources. And, um, most cheeses will use it from animal sources which is what makes it non-kosher and that's why most cheeses are deemed to be non-kosher unless they're specifically known to be made with non-animal oils Um, on top of that once you have okay what's kosher and what's not kosher you can't mix meat and dairy you cannot mix them if you eat meat. You have to wait six hours until you can eat dairy. If you eat dairy, though, you can eat meat pretty much right away. And fish is considered neutral. You can have fish with dairy. You can have fish with meat. You're totally fine if you're eating fish. It's considered a non-dairy and a non-meat. So, <coughs> sorry. So for any fish out there that you're not sure what to identify as, don't worry. You can be whatever you
1: want to be. <laughs> <laughs> wait, so you said so you can... you. Can you explain that a little bit more so you can have a piece of meat, but you have to wait six hours to have a piece mm-hmm. of cheese, but you can have a piece of cheese and then have meat right, meat right yeah. after? Yeah. It's, it's very
0: weird. Why That's is that? That's a really good question. I have no idea, but there are a couple of explanations. So some uh, rabbis believe or some commentaries believe that meat takes longer to process in your stomach and for it to digest so it's in your digestive system longer than a dairy would be so because you don't want it to even mix in your system you want to wait until it's been quote unquote digested um that's just one of the explanations but the most important explanation that i've heard all the time is that it's a hook which means that it's a rule that we don't have an explanation for and the point of kosher of course like there's retroactively we've seen a lot of health benefits of course it's about practicing like you know control and not gluttony but uh the most important thing is that we keep kosher to honor god and um, to live according to the way of god so even if we don't understand why that's what we do again like i said i'm not quite there i only wait three hours after meat and dairy i have friends that don't wait at all i have friends that wait the full six my sister waits the full six so you know you could kind of find your in between um, you know, make, make kosher work for you a little bit, but that's, that's generally the idea of kosher. And then there's the, the, the idea of certification because a lot of people ask about, well, what does it mean? Is it kosher certified? Cause let's say for example, you'll have a cookie and the cookie doesn't have a kosher certification and your, you know, religious Jewish friend won't eat it, but you read the ingredients and it just mm-hmm. says like, you know, wheat, milk, flour, you know, vanilla extract and vanilla flavors, let's say, um, The OU the orthodox union or whichever other kosher certification they just certify that there's been um, that this is a kosher product so even though you're a kosher product if you're not getting it certified by one of these organizations which is relatively expensive then your product your product won't say that it is kosher so even though a product might Mm -hmm. technically be kosher in terms of whether or not its ingredients and its preparation are kosher, if it doesn't have the certification, someone who's orthodox will not eat it. So sometimes you'll mean very well, and like you'll buy a certain candy or a certain chocolate, you'll bring it to an orthodox friend, and they still won't be able to eat it, and you'll say, what do you mean it's just dark chocolate? That's the reason why. It's all because of the certification.
1: Right. And, and that's really interesting because I'm sure, like, there's other food restrictions, including halal, which we'll get to at the very end. And that, like, some things may not, you know, have the H on it, like, may not claim to be halal, but it, it very well could be halal. Um, I want to go back to the, the meat and dairy thing real quick. Am I correct in... in I'm going to tell you what I, why I think... Uh, or why I think I know why you guys Jews don't mix uh, meat and dairy and you could tell me if I'm wrong so is there something in the Torah about not eating a calf and its son or daughter is that yeah. the reason why those so two don't mix the words of the
0: Torah are that it would be an abomination to cook a baby in its mother's milk so a calf in its mother's milk mm. it's just considered something heinous in the Torah and that's the original reasoning behind it um now of course we don't keep our cows together back in the day you know you had your cows that gave dairy and then they gave birth to calves and those were your meat and it makes perfect sense even when you had like a town the guy who had the cows and the guy who had the calves odds are that they were bred together and those calves came from that cow so it 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 makes sense but nowadays we get our meat completely separate from where we get our dairy and there's a lot of other dairy so why can't i put goat cheese for example which comes from a goat on lamb Mm. Right. So now it's like interspecies. It's like, well, that's obviously not its mother. They're different species. They obviously didn't come from the same farm. But in Judaism, we have this idea of building fences. Right. So even then something might be technically OK or possibly OK, we build fences around it to make sure that we're OK. There's also the idea of Marat ayin, mm-hmm. which means the idea of doing something OK that doesn't fully seem OK. So for example, let's say you're cooking something with meat and you want to put almond milk in it. If someone passes by your home, by the way, this is actually in the Gemara. If someone passes by your home and they see you putting milk in what seems to be meat, they might think, oh, the rabbi's doing it so I can do it too. They might get confused and they might actually do it too. So there's um, an idea that maybe you should put almonds next to it or it should say almond milk on it, something like that. Or like for example, let's say that you're very thirsty. You wanna go into McDonald's just to get a soda and you're an orthodox rabbi. Can you go to McDonald's to get a soda? Obviously they're not putting anything in your soda, right? The idea is that if an orthodox rabbi is seen in a McDonald's, people might think it's okay to eat at a McDonald's or people might think he's sinning and then they'll think poor things about him. So it's like a don't do a okay thing that looks bad. Don't do something good that looks bad. It's a it's a thing that we have in Spanish. No hagas algo bueno que parezca malo. Don't do something good that looks bad. So a lot of these are hmm. fences. Um, Back in the day in Syria, there was no kosher certification. Back in the day, they used to just read the ingredients and be like, okay, that sounds fine. And then they would buy it and they would eat it. But nowadays we have a lot more checks and we are able to be a lot more careful. And again, this is just for the highest levels of kosher, which again, I one day aspire to be more kosher. Alas, I'm not quite there.
1: It's I just love the way religion is. It's just so freaking cool. Like None of this yeah. makes any sense, but I'm so glad we get to do it. I'm so glad that we have these impulses and that we're able to check them as as human beings as societies as part of communities because we care about each other and we care about something higher than our our earthly desires and our earthly needs um uh i want to take us back to the coptic food um just to kind of contrast it to some of this kosher talk um so obviously because of this huge fasting period in the coptic calendar a lot of coptic food um one it's, it's kind of confusing to have a conversation about Coptic food because a lot of Coptic food is Egyptian mm-hmm. food and is Arab food. And that kind of transcends borders and crosses into Levantine and other Arab countries that have the same food. But there are some pretty, uh, there's some good evidence to that. Some of the foods that we know and love today actually have Coptic origins, uh, including, drumroll please, falafel. Um, so, I know, we're, we're getting right in there. Um, so, falafel. I can't believe falafel is such a taboo topic to talk about. But it turns out um, everybody claims falafel. Everybody and their mom thinks their country invented it. And their grandpa was the one that soaked the chickpeas. And, you know, the other grandpa was the one that grew the herbs and ground the spices, whatnot. Um, But it turns out one of the explanations, and this is definitely not the only explanation, is that falafel is a Coptic food and a Coptic word. Uh, this possible theory was posed by a scholar who does falafel research. What a cool <laughs> job he has. Um, and it, he posed that the dish was actually first created in Egypt by Coptic Christians about a thousand years ago, who eat, ate it as a meat substitute during one of our many, many fasts. The Coptic uh, language at the time, which was way more popular than it is now and was a spoken language for for centuries and decades, um, suggests that the Coptic origin notes or letters Fa-la-fiel, um meaning of many beans, is actually the root of the word, Coptic word falafel. Obviously, this gets really complicated really fast. Uh, first kind of, um, you know, nail in this system that poses that falafel is a Coptic word and a Coptic food is that The word falafel in arabic doesn't actually mean anything in in egyptian arabic isn't actually falafel so the food is the same Mm. so falafel uh, is used around the arab world to mean a ball of fried dough usually made of chickpeas spices and herbs um you deep fry it and it's golden and you put it in pita and you have a great sandwich but the the comparison for it in egyptian arabic is actually and it's the same food essentially with a few Key differences. Um, First, it's not a ball. It's much flatter and crispier. And two, uh, regular falafel in the Levantine countries is made out of soaked chickpeas, while in Egypt it's made out of soaked fava beans. Um, So there's obviously some uh, discrepancies in this theory, but I like it and it fits my narrative, so I'm going to go with it and I'm going to take the win for the Coptic team. I love um, your explanation. So
0: like, I love it.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's it's just it is what it is. I'm taking the win. It reminds um, me a lot of. Uh, oh, so that's, go ahead. Sorry. N-
0: no, please. Yeah, go ahead. Say, it reminds me a lot of my big fat Greek wedding. I don't know if you've seen the movie, but there's like a part where like the older Greek father is saying how every word comes from Greek. And like the smart ass daughter is like, OK, well, what about kimono? which is obviously Japanese. And the father goes kimono comes from kimona, which means winter, and kimono is a robe. What do you wear when you're cold? In the winter, you wear a robe. Kimono, kimona, there you go. And it's like, there it is, fa la fel, of the beans, of the many beans.
1: Every episode, we're gonna do this thing where we just pick a random <laughs> word, and I'm gonna find a way to make it Coptic, and it's gonna be completely made up every time, and I'm gonna love it. Um, everybody like claims I falafel really like claims everybody: it. Israelis, yeah. Egyptians, Palestinians, Lebanese, and everybody then the in the Greeks are like, falafel. "It's ours," and everyone's like, "Go home." <laughs> yeah, you have the Euro, yeah. bro. go home. Um, Another Coptic food, which we've actually talked about in this podcast extensively um is the smelly fish uh fesich. so there's this holiday in the Egyptian calendar called Shem el Nasim, which translates to the smelling of the flowers and it's stems from an ancient Egyptian holiday uh, meant to celebrate and mark the spring solstice and the beginning of kind of the forming season as it were um and obviously ancient Egyptians including the Copts, kind of took it and ran with it and it, it's still now a holiday that's celebrated by Copts and non-copts all over Egypt And it's, um, you know, it usually happens sometime during the spring, like at the start of the spring. It's usually, honestly, like the day right after Easter, if I'm not mistaken. It's usually one of the most... One of the first like nice days of the year like you know nice weather um and you go outside you spend the day with family usually in a garden or or in a park somewhere and you eat this smelly fish called fasig and uh to make fasig uh trigger warning this episode's been full of trigger warnings you take yeah you take a fish you put abundant amounts of salt on it you put it in like a metal canister and you bury it in the scorching egyptian desert for like six months even more at times and then you know you unbox it obviously people don't do this there's skilled craftsmen in doing this and you buy it from them and you take it out of the desert once it's done and the salt kind of has made it all weird and tender and you're supposed to eat it outside because if you eat it inside your home Mm. will stink for days um but that food too dates back to ancient egyptian times and and coptic um and, and You know the coptic tradition and you'll find that a lot of the coptic tradition or the coptic foods is kind of it's the coptic people served as intermediaries between ancient egypt and modern egypt and that they kept a lot of the ancient egyptian culture and and celebrations and foods alive and transitioned them to now um uh you know modern egypt um and i think it's really cool that we keep a lot of these things alive and and my community my people served as the mediators, the the people who kept these things that would have otherwise died a very long time ago. Um,
0: first off, when it comes to Sheman and the smelly fish, do you guys have like a certain part of the desert that you use for this? Like is it do you just like you can't walk there because like there's buried fish everywhere? Like how, how does it work? Like do you guys rope it off? Like buried fish, like open when hot. Like
1: <laughs> That's hilarious. I don't know. I don't think so. I think that so there's certain families that are known for you know, being like a hundredth generation fish mm. makers, and you'll like people have their fish guy, like a <laughs> like a freaking drug dealer. Like you go to this guy to get your stinky fish. So I think they have, you know, probably bought land in the desert somewhere so that their family can continue this tradition and continue this, you know, occupation and pass it down to their kids and grandkids and so forth. Um, it it maybe let's go to Egypt. <laughs> let's, let's find, find out. out. Let's find out if there's just fish yeah, in the desert. I mean,
0: it- Fish in the desert. I Actually, that'd be a really cool name for a memoir, Fish in the Desert. <laughs> but um, that actually takes me to, to my next question. So uh, Coptic Egyptians, for for our followers who know, but our followers who don't know, um, are Christians in Egypt. And Egypt, of course, eats halal. So we, we talked about the fasting. We talked about some Coptic foods. But how did halal play into your upbringing as a Coptic Christian?
1: Absolutely. That's a great question. Um, and it's one I get often a lot of cops who live in Egypt, um, I mean, the majority of cops currently live in Egypt, will eat halal because the country eats halal, like the world eats halal the same way that um, it's kind of difficult to eat kosher or halal here. It's kind of difficult to not eat halal Ooh. in a Muslim country. Um, so the word halal, let me just kind of take us back one step. The word halal is an Arabic word that means uh, lawful or permitted um, in relation to food, um, but it also applies to a lot of other things like cosmetics nail polish other um, personal care products so what kinds of things aren't halal uh, pork bacon ham of course are kind of the the things that people know off the top of their head any meat that comes from a pig because a pig is considered a dirty animal because each trash, um, obviously, any meat products that come from um, pigs um, and any meat products that come from an animal that was not uh, slaughtered in a halal way. Um, and that includes, well, I kind of want to actually trigger warning again. <laughs> ...go through what it means to slaughter an animal in a halal way because it's very similar to the way that you were describing about kosher. Um, let me just see. So, in order to slaughter an animal online line with the Islamic faith, a cut needs to be made through the windpipe, corduroyed artery, and the jugular vein. The animal needs to be healthy, cannot be disabled or harmed in any way... Um, and once that cut has been made across the major arteries i assume it's because it's also intended to uh, be the least painful way for the animal to die all blood needs to be drained from the animal um, so very very similar to kosher um, in addition to all of this while this is happening including the butchering uh, the butcher is reciting a dedication known as the shahada or tazmiyah um to, so to answer your question a lot of cops and a lot of minorities across the arab world including egypt will eat halal because it's what's happening around them in fact my parents have always eaten halal and when we moved to the u.s they continue to eat halal my sisters and i don't because we like ribs too much but even till this day my parents eat halal they won't you know eat pork or come near a pig because in their head they, they grew up with their muslim neighbors expressing very openly that it's a dirty animal so they freeze to eat it um it's, it's very fascinating how it's not you know written in our uh, theology or Bible or anything like that, but we still maintain it because it's part of our culture. And I would even say it's uh, very Egyptian-ish to keep things that don't really belong to you, even <laughs> though um, they don't apply to you, you still keep them.
0: So that's, it's very interesting that you're talking about how halal is somewhat similar to kosher. I love that your parents still keep halal now, because again, it's, it's kind of like those traditions of the diaspora, um, that seep into your culture or traditions of your culture that seep that you keep in the diaspora, and I, I really love that. And I think one of my like favorite like halal kosher interactions was like when I went to NYU, the kosher cafeteria was always full of people who ate halal because all food that's kosher kosher is more stringent than halal so everything that's kosher is halal but not everything that's halal is kosher so um people who only eat halal felt very comfortable at the kosher cafeteria because they knew that they could eat all of those foods so it was like a very cool moment it was kind of like that you know chinese Christmas Jewish situation where it's like we're both here because we have this understanding of something it is we have in common instead of it being like a day we have in common where we are going on about business as usual. We have these restrictions we have in common and where we're sharing in the keeping of our traditions.
1: Absolutely, absolutely, and that kind of brings us to our last topic of today, which is diaspora mm. foods, if we can even call it that. Um, what does it mean to be a Jew living in the diaspora, um, and what does it mean to be a cop living in the diaspora and having to observe all these food laws? I would I would call them, um, you know, trying to keep as much as you can, but also trying to assimilate and adapt to this new world. Um, what is diaspora food, or what what words come to mind when I tell when I start to talk about uh, being a Jew in the diaspora, trying to maintain kosher.
0: There is there's a lot of ways, but just in terms of like an Americanish understanding of diaspora food is like when people like bring challah and it's like sourdough challah or it's like pretzel bun challah and it's like all of those fulfill the obligation of challah, but it's like this very Americanish take on a jewish tradition where it's like here we happen to love sourdough great let's make sourdough challah and that's completely kosher and you're allowed to do it and uh like i was saying before like when people do like challah french toast or challah eggs benedict or challah avocado toast it like kind of like takes a jewish thing and makes it more modern and i think that that's like a a really a, a product of the diaspora it's like the equivalent of ramen burgers i don't think anyone in you know Countries that traditionally eat ramen we're eating ramen burgers, but that is the diaspora and that's where we're living in right now. But um, my favorite interaction, and I talk about this all the time, and Passover is coming up, so I'm, I'm really happy it's coming up, is as a Sephardic Jew, we eat grains on Passover, and that includes corn. Mm-hmm. So as a Sephardic Mexican Jew, we eat tortillas. So for me, Passover is directly associated with Mexican food. For me, Passover is a week's worth of tacos, and enchiladas, chilaquiles, like empanadas, like all of these hadas, <laughs> if we want to call them that. Um, we have all these tortilla-based foods, and that's just how my community adapted to the fact that it was in Mexico. We were a Sephardic community in the Mexican diaspora, uh, or in the diaspora in Mexico. So we adopted our Passover, or adapted our Passover into a Mexican Sephardic Passover, and that is fully a product of the diaspora. What about you?
1: Yeah, it's so interesting when these Mm -hmm. two worlds or two or more worlds clash. So obviously I try to do as much of the Coptic fast as I can. And that means I end up eating a lot of Asian food, like tofu based foods, um, because it tends to be vegan. There's this great restaurant by me that I will forever gatekeep um, (laughs) that does exclusively vegan, exclusively like Asian cuisine. And I end up eating so much of it because... I am fasting and that's, you know, the most accessible vegan options that I have if I'm not cooking. Um, and I often think about how, like, my Coptic ancestors would just be very confused by me eating, you know, like a bao <laughs> bun or, uh, I don't know, like kung pao tofu <laughs> for dinner uh, as, as, you know, as a way to keep my fast. Um, there's also this restaurant called Shalom Japan. So have you I been- haven't been, but I've heard so much about it. We we should check it out. I've heard really good things. So obviously Shalom Japan. So they do like kosher Japanese food, kosher sushi, which I think sushi is inherently vegan, right? It it
0: depends. So there's Uh, kosher. kosher. actually, it's funny that you say that because I didn't talk about this earlier. But there's a lot of people that will eat sushi out because if you're just having like rice, you know, seaweed, and then they're just putting vegetables in it. Let's say then. There, there is no danger for non-kosher. The only danger would be cross-contamination. So, if you ask them to change the knives, to change the cutting boards, to change the gloves, then you are eating a cold food. So, there is no transferring of non-kosher. So, sushi is. If people eat out, usually the first thing they'll eat out will be sushi. So, I have a lot of friends that don't eat fish out, they don't eat pastas out, they don't eat dairy out, but they do eat sushi out. So, it's it's interesting that you bring that up. But yes, but yeah, Shalom Japan. I've been hearing really rave reviews about. So, we're going to go. We're going to do a review.
1: Yeah, let's do it. Yeah, we, oh, oh, my God, let's just turn this show into food review. That would make all my dreams come true. Um, well, this was just kind of the the tip of the iceberg when it comes to this conversation about the relationship of food to religion and faith and, and what food means to us um, personally and in, in our cultures. Um, we hope to do more of this. Um, please reach out to us and let us know, like, what does food mean to you personally in your faith? Uh, in your culture and your community and, and how you kind of use it as a way to connect because we know we certainly do thank you so much guys we'll see you next week